The title of today's sermon is Sexual Immorality and Christian Freedom. This is passage uh, in 1 Corinthians, Apostle Paul's letter to Corinthian Christians in 1st century, written 2,000 years ago, close to. You'll be amazed at how relevant the topic is and the passage is, as if he's writing to, to the 21st century Christians and somewhere the other side of the globe. Um, I mentioned it several times that Corinthian church uh, reflects the Californian church, much of the Californian culture is similar to, to the Corinthian uh, culture. And not only the, the metropolitan uh, economical way, but also the, because of Hollywood, because of California, layback culture, we could identify much, much of it. So in that regard... Last week we talked about litigation culture uh, then and now. So in that sense, let's look at as a background before we delve into the text in um, 1 Corinthians 6, let's look at over-sexualized culture then and now. The first century city of Corinth was known for their sexual laxity. It was the center of a sensuality. Do you remember that um, the goddess of love and sex, the fertility god, uh, Aphrodite, the, the equivalent of Roman goddess of love and sex, which was very well known to us, Venus. Her, uh, her statue was so huge the people became uh, people drawn to to travel to to see that temple itself, and up to a thousand temple priestess, and in some sense, it's a religious prostitutes because of fertility, love, and sex. The part of the worship was having sexual relation with. The temple prostitutes, prostitutes, and priestess. So you know, point you know you know sense that the word Corinthianized, and back in the days, Greek word is a Corinthiosomai. Uh, became equivalent as to practice sexual immorality, to practice. Fornication. So it kind of reminds us a lot about um, going to Vegas. You know, what, whatever happens in Vegas, it remains Vegas. But it is the culture of vacation. It's a weekend thing. It's a week thing. A bachelor parties and bachelorette parties. But day in, day out, this over-sexualized culture was their lifestyle. Desensitization actually happened. In other words, people no sh- there was no shocking thing when it comes to sexual sexuality and sexual things. And actually, the, any new thing and many stimulating thing was welcomed. The same thing in our culture, isn't it? Uh, somehow we become desensitized of sex. Really sells. And therefore, all the commercials. And I still remember uh, when I was a single, not that I don't have a temptation as a married man, but I used to, back in my youth ministry days, I used to work at this import-export business in City of Commerce. So I would drive down all the way from Commerce to Irvine to UCI campus and spend time with students. But every time when I come down, 
there was a beer commercial that half naked woman going like this. I just I don't remember any other billboards, but I remember that. <laughs> Sex sells. What about all those boy bands and uh, girl bands and K-pops? Their movement and everything so sexual, and it's it, it equivalent to attractive. They're good. The body movement. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and even in our hotels, uh, back in when, you know, back in the 80s, when I was growing up as a teenager, to feel tempted, you need strong initiative, physical initiative, to go out to uh, 7-Eleven or somewhere places like that to buy, quote-unquote, dirty magazine. And nowadays, the Internet, without even us asking for it, there's a pop-ups if you don't have the, the filtering system or ad blocks or, or even the uh, special anti-spyware thing. If we don't have that, somehow it's infiltrated into our homes. And Kate, one day, she was looking through some things and clicked something, and very sexual picture with words came up, and she was frantic. I spent two days to clean up uh, buying anti-spyware also, too. Finally clean up. And that became my fatherly duty to do every morning I, I run that program to make sure that our, our growing boys, teenage boys, do, do not see that accidentally. But I want this, at least this passage, this message to be focused on us. Whether we shift our attention to, to our kids and have the sexual temptation about our kids than rather than us. It is true that many men, including uh, people in, in ministry, struggle with pornography. It is true that outside of the church, when you talk about any kind of sexual relationship, no longer marriage becomes a boundary, sacred boundary for having sex. Typically, it doesn't take sexually immoral person to admit that as long as we love each other and meaningful relationships there and boyfriend, girlfriend, having sex is normal. And even having uh, lived together before the marriage, before the wedding, is a good practice, a common wisdom for today's world. But anyway, before we go into it now, let's go back to the then again. And the Corinthian church was also affected by this overly sexualized culture. There are two Christian models among the Christians' slogans. The first slogan and we'll see that in our passage today, is all things are lawful for me. This was reflection of Paul's theology of grace, derived from salvation by grace and by faith, by grace and through faith alone. There was no other person who emphasized more that we cannot earn our salvation by works and obedience, keeping the law, than Paul, Apostle Paul. So in a sense that what Paul has said and the polarized extreme, and they made the principle of Christian freedom. And that becomes, became a critical problem for Paul's eyes. Slogan number two. Among the Corinthian Christians, they're saying, 
Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. This is actually derived from Greek philosophy of dualism. What it is, is that anything mental, spiritual, non-physical things are forever. And it is good. But physical things, and including body, is bad. It's not good. It's not really you. It's fake. But if you look at Christian theology about our body, there's a, a eclipse on some of that. But even nowadays, that duology affected on our Christian theology quite a bit as well. Bible never says our body is useless or even bad at all. And I only mention that uh, today's passage even more. God considers our bodies so sacred that he doesn't save our spirit only. He saves entire being, including our body. Therefore, part of highlight of Christian salvation is resurrection of the body. When Jesus returns, our bodies will be resurrected into a resurrected body of Jesus. It's much like it. It will be imperishable body. The body that doesn't decay, body that doesn't have a, the sarks of flesh and sinful nature. You think about this. If, if you have a dualism, bodies useless, bodies bad, anything mental and uh, spiritual things good, two responses often, even nowadays, happen. And back in the days, one is the Stoics did that. Ignore any kind of urges, physical urges. And they went extreme uh, abstinence of all kinds of pleasures. And even they tortured their body because body is bad. And they try not to feel anything. And they deny the natural uh, sexual desires and uh, your cravings for food and all those things. But on the other side, in Corinthians' case, well, the body is useless anyway. So we're going to take it off anyway. So we might as well be merry. Be glad and drink and party. and It doesn't matter, isn't it? Because it's not really me. This is the point. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. So this is the half-truth also, too. God created uh, all Food is given by God. But what they did is they took this thing and went one step further for physical pleasure, which is sexual immorality. Sex is meant for our body and body for sex. So live it out. And I use the word desensitized culture happened. In other words, could be Overly sexualized culture means sexual immorality became normal way of life. It is okay. That's what Paul's going after today's passage. I said much of now already, but maybe I could mention about the church side. Is church any better? Well, the church is shifting quite a bit. It's the the ripple effect uh, from the 40s and 50s, the culture was a leave it to beaver culture. And then and going into married with children culture, the mainstream. Now the church is bombarded with this invasion of sexual, secular culture of the sexual ethics. Not to mention premarital sex. 
but also even compared to 20, 10 years ago, the same-sex marriage issue became so hot and so politically correct to, for anyone who speaks against it will be criticized, bigoted in some sense, marked as a, as someone who is narrow-minded. What century do you live in? So if you look at the mainstream Christian denominations slowly moving toward to, then surely even not only uh, endorsing same-sex marriage, but also uh, empowering people who are practicing homosexuality as their pastor. And even in your circle of friends, to say anything bad about homosexuality became a very difficult thing. And Tim Keller is right. The culture created, there is no middle ground. Either you are Bible-banging, gay-hating, people are cursing at these people, very judgmental people, or you accept and tolerate everyone. What about biblical truth? Can we stand? As much as the people who are uh, singles, or who have a full uh, sexual passions and healthy drive, as a single person, the biblical mandate is to abstain from sexual activity. As much as we could flirt in some sense, at work, but any kind of sexual innuendo or the compromising uh, our sexual standard as a married couple, we need to uphold that biblical sexual ethics. God's word never changed. But we have come to the culture that's surrounded by this new sexual ethics. What are we to do? I, I, wanted, I wanted to even call it as just a sex and Christian uh, freedom. But to be more faithful to the text itself, let's understand what Paul is really saying and before we quickly jump to the application. The question that I'm asking this morning is, what is biblical guidance? What is scriptural guidance about how we should deal with sexual temptation, sexual sins, over-sexualized culture? Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Do you see the quotation? So that is intentional and uh, Paul's case, because basically uh, all these things were kind of thrown at as quote-unquote slogan or model or common knowledge. They used to throw things. All things are lawful for me. But Paul comes up with his uh, antithesis. But not all things are helpful. You see, they got this from Paul. And Paul, instead of going to another polarized extreme, and he didn't say, all things are lawful, let me tell you some of the things not lawful and list them out. That would be legalism. Paul, in his, in his, in his gospel, clearly states, under the grace of God, there is no condemnation. Therefore, technically speaking, all things are lawful for Christians. Incredible truth. But instead of giving legalistic answer, he gives, he gives answer of grace, which is principles. Not all things are helpful. And he goes again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not dominate it by anything. Second principle. Food is meant 
for the stomach and the stomach for the food. Quotation, their slogan again. And Paul comes up with his antithesis. And God destroys both and the other. It will not last long. God's design is not just that. The body is principle here, not for men for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And as an example and point to illustrate, he mentions God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. And I think if we could just remember and memorize and even realize this over and over, that would be tremendously helpful to guide us each step. The body is for the Lord and Lord for our body. I'm anxious to come to the conclusion, but I'm going to hold back for now. So what are some Summarizing again, what are some wrong questions to ask? Is it lawful? Am I allowed to do it? And I've been approached this to, to this a lot, you know, over the years, and even nowadays. And some Christians will come up and is going to Vegas, it's uh, gambling sin. And I will say, oh, not necessarily, because uh, I've been... I've been to Vegas and a lot of people enjoy it as an entertainment. And then let's say that person takes that as a legalism. Well, Paul said it's not against the God, God's will. So I'm going. Every weekend. <laughs> it's drinking sin. You see that the question itself is a problematic from Paul's eyes. We ought to ask, is it helpful? Is it edifying? The question of freedom is not, I could do whatever I want to do. The question of real freedom and Christian freedom is, I could stop doing whatever I am doing. Hence the focus is the second uh, principle, right question is, will it enslave me? Will it dominate me? Is it addictive? And if so, I don't have freedom. I became an enslaved person to that. Someone adamantly said, I could tell you I could quit smoking. I quit smoking hundred times already. You see what I mean, right? So instead of asking, I mean, to a point, the legalistic way is, can Facebook become sin? Wrong approach, wrong question. Is it edifying? Am I enslaved by this Facebook? And, uh, during my quiet time, can I continually, and my mind is continually going to clicking on Facebook 20, 30 more times before finally return? And actually, you should think about your Christian freedom there. And among the brothers, we saw uh, energy drink. And, and I have nothing against the energy drink. I drink myself. But we ought to think honestly. Oh, here's a, here's a question in mind. The person who is addicted, the number one sign is a denial, right? So, oh, I could control it. Ask others. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. Does it tend to enslave? Ask your children. To test it out. I think we should even test it out by fasting. One week, whole month. 
and not going without Facebook, whatever that you're enjoying so much, and you think that you have a control over. The Christian freedom, we need to approach rightly, otherwise it becomes about me, rather than God-centered way of doing things. We become legalistic if we become about me. Because we have measured the way that it ought to be from our point of view, including gray areas, and we judge others through that. But if it is about how it affects me, or another question is in Galatians 5.13 said, instead of using your freedom for the opportunity for your flesh, sinful nature, use it for the opportunity to serve one another in love. Our freedom is for the purpose of serving one another in love. It's not about me, again. The true freedom, Christian freedom, have that colorful fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, and peace. I think we should revisit that. And especially this first point uh, has a broader application, much more than sexual uh, temptations or sexual lust. We all need to think about that. But I would like to bring us and keep our focus in spite of the fact that it makes us feel a little uncomfortable on our sexuality. Because Paul thought of this topic so crucial that he is going after it. Remember, I said six times he used the phrase, do you not know? The Christian truth ought to lead us Christian life. Our belief and our conduct has to be congruent. And the three phrases were used for our, the church's identity. What God thinks of the church. And we ought to live that identity. And here, Christians' own identity personal, our body, the truth about body, comes up. So that's number two. The first principle, begin with this, ask the right questions in exercising your Christian freedom. Number two, know this, or realize this, know the truth about your body. As I mentioned, there are three phrases come up again. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Or as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And speaking, skipping to verse 19, the, uh, the third phrase, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The first truth about our body is our bodies are members of of Christ. Keep it holy. One who is members of the body of Christ cannot be members of sexual immorality. In Paul's context in Corinthian, first Corinthians, I mean first century Corinthian context, the word prostitute is very appropriate. Why? Because the Christians, because of normalized, over-sexualized culture, they were still going to the temple prostitute for whenever they have a sexual urge. It was a normal thing. It was not a big deal for others, too. And Paul is saying, 
When you become, when you have a sexual relationship with prostitute, you become one with sexual partner. Not only a female prostitute, but the male prostitute as well. Because of the homosexuality comes that way. How should we read this? I think we should think of it not as, oh, I haven't gone to the streets of red light district and, you know, bought sex. Or even I, online, I didn't buy any of those uh, cyber sex thing. I didn't pay anything. Everything was free. I didn't do anything. We should think of it as any sexual immoral practices including our mind also too. What, what's the big deal here? Do you know that when something is so sacred and so important that we want to protect it, right? For example, your, your child health, and not only physical health, mental health is very important. And then your friend, normal guy, who has a foul mouth, comes over your house. And it was okay when you're kind of working out the gym together or even doing projects from S-word and F-bombs and from time to time. You don't mind that at all. But when he does it in front of your kid, six-year-old or seven-year-old kid, you will be absolutely upset because you care about the child. That's your son. That's your daughter. See, God made sex a reflection of our intimate relationship with God in Holy Trinity in that sense. So when we say we're the Christ's bride and we will be married, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church whole becomes the bride of Christ. And that reflection, and God has given sex as a special gift for bonding effect for marriage. The sacredness of that is anyone who is going outside of the marriage, God is very upset. This is sacred for our sake. He's holy. So, sexual laxity in our culture. Now think of this. Any kind of like sexual innuendos or jokes or the pictures, there's a blur line these days, right? Don't you care about your wife? Your commitment to your wife? Your commitment to your husband? Whatever happens in your head is offensive to God. Paul's going at that right now. Truth number two, when you commit sexual sins, you become one with the sexual defilement. Truth number three, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So for those of us who think that our body is not that important, we should think again, biblically, Christianly. Our body I feel very convicted about our treating our body with you know, health and care and self-care, proper care. That's very important, not because we want to, be, we want to live forever or anything like that. But God calls our body sacred. That's why he has planned for the resurrection of the body. Okay, get this. If body was not important to God, our salvation will be our spirit only. Your entire being, our whole salvation, is, the salvation is of our whole being. So when a lot of times when people mention um, marriage, two shall become one flesh, one body. Usually means 
whole being, not just the flesh only, physical flesh, but becomes whole being, whole soul. The third truth, actually, in verse 19b, comes with, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. What price? Precious blood of Jesus. It doesn't belong to you. God redeemed your body. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Number three, not only we need to begin with the right perspective, right questions, and then we need to know the truth about our body and to get to the real sharp point, Paul mentioned, verse 18, at all costs, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Let's first of all think about this. The command is flee. Not to resist. Not to reason. Flee. Run. Waste no time. Who who comes to your mind? Joseph. He ran so fast he didn't have time to pick up his, I mean, grab a hold onto his shirt, his jacket, or whatever that might be. The the Potiphar's wife is holding onto that. And what that means is instead of becomes a desensitized a normal way of dealing with temptation, I could handle it. We should flee from anything that gives us temptation and urges in a lustful way. Anything, anytime, any person who brings sexual temptation or lust. Anytime, maybe in the middle of the night when no one's around, your kids are sleeping, and we ought to be very careful. And some brothers actually decide not to be on the internet for a while because of those temptations. Instead of reasoning, I could, I could do this and get accountability. No, I'm not going to use it for a while. I could. For, could I, I had a brother who used to call me in the middle of the night, the urge of temptations. And I called him for my temptation. Mine was more food, eating at night. <laughs> do you flee or do you reason? Or do you resist how far you could go? And by the way, this verse is one of the most difficult verses. I spent literally two days, two full days of setting this one passage, one one verse. Went through probably up to eight or nine commentaries and going through that. But it comes to, to this idea. What I said before, if body isn't just a, a physical flesh, The body represents interpersonal communication, which includes our psychological, emotional, spiritual communication. That's intimacy. So when you open up sexually, isn't it true that um, whenever you're, you're, I need to be careful, Kate will kill me of this. God's gift for marriage is that 
whenever you you have a really good um, light night of lovemaking, you feel much closer. You can't explain it, isn't it? That's God's gift for us. You're drawn to that. There are emotions, it's psychological effect, not only physical pleasure. You end up saying, I love you more because of that. Oh, how about the other side? I counsel so many people who went through all kinds of sexual sins, especially because it's a normalized culture. Uh, Many partners or, or living situations and always what costs most is their relationship with God. There isn't intimacy anymore. There isn't openness and coming clean with God anymore. And when that happens, when that person experiences grace in that bright darkness, they experience gospel of Christ. There is hope for everyone. But the point is that we should not think of sexual sin as one of those many sins. Sexual sins are not necessarily the worst sin, but unique sin. sin. Because it opens up our psychological and spiritual uh, to it. And sexual revolution... Feminism, a feminist movement actually damaged much more on the woman than men. Because women are much more open and interconnected with spiritually, psychologically. And when the sexual relationship happens, there's a stigma happens. There is hope. By the blood of Jesus Christ, there could be healing. But we should be very careful. Uh, you know, I don't do those uh, premarital counseling class, big class anymore, the one-on-one. Usually when I have a big class, I used to have every couple start with this positive things. Less Christians think that Sex, are made, sex is made by Satan, and it's, it's a dirty thing. We should feel guilty every time we have sex with our wives or husbands. So we, I wanted to make sure that, start with this. Okay, on account of three, everybody say, sex is beautiful. Guys are ten times louder than that. <laughs> but the second thing that I have them say is sex is beautiful powerful. Sex is like a dynamite. You don't temper with dynamite. That's Paul's point here. You get hurt if you misuse sex. Eugene Peterson in message translation paraphrased this beautifully. I love this. Verse 18 through 16 through 18, he writes, There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As it is written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with one another. Isn't that good? Here's a big conclusion that Paul drives at. And I want to highlight on this more than anything. Paul's main point is 
instead of sexual immorality and tempering with the dynamite, do this. Sorry about that. Glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Why? Because you're not on your own, not your own, for you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. So think of me, think with me this way. Our body is sacred and God has given us, and then the time that we have this temporal body, it, although it is uh, mixed with the defrailty and the frailty and weakness and shortcoming and sinful nature in our body because body for the lord for lord for the lord for the body we are to glorify god how will you use your body to glorify god I think I was planning to just wrap up uh, simply on this point, but I kept on thinking about this. The culture sneaked into the Christian culture that minimized the danger of sexual immorality. Kind of shrug our shoulders. You're too uptight, Paul. Not only Apostle Paul, but this Paul too. What century do you live in? See, the true spirituality matters because when you are focused on yourself, everything can be justified and rationalized. A man-centered world. But true spirituality is rooted in God-centeredness. And it is different. Basically, this becomes a, one of the hottest items in our personal walk with God. And I find John Piper, his word, very provocative and challenging and encouraging at the same time. He writes, why is this a big deal? Is in sexual sin, especially when it's just a desire and not an act, sin with a title with small s, shouldn't we get on with the big issues like nuclear arms and social justice? You've known people like that, I suppose. They say sexual attitudes and sexual behavior are matter of relatively insignificant personal piety. What counts is whether you boycott companies in South Africa and oppose Star Wars defense systems. He's written this about 20 years ago, so it's a little old one. Sleeping around is simply no big deal if you are on the picket line at the Honeywell and flipping through. Playboy is utterly insignificant if you are on your way to peace talks in Geneva. But that is not what God has said. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6 says, that no man transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is avenger in all these things, as we solemnly forewarn you. Chapter 4 is about lust, sexual lust. This means that consequences of lust are going to be worse than the consequences of, the, of nuclear war. All that nuclear war can do is, is kill the body, meaning not the spirit. So brothers and sisters, this is a call to simple and yet radical obedience to scripture guidance about sexually tempting things or sexual lust, 
or in general over-sexualized culture. Because I know for this for sure. For, 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 I for one know this for sure. Whatever hinders my relationship with God, at the center of it is lust. And once again, my sexual stamina, I'm thankful for that. I want, I desire my, my wife all the time. I hope you do too. But when we place the judgment on our man-centered way, what we lose is not only the eternal salvation, but intimate reality of our relationship with God day by day. The intimacy will be gone at the price of pleasures. So I implore you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to surrender all, surrender your heart, and surrender your bodies to God. And let it be the tool for glorifying God rather than satisfying your sexual pleasures outside of marriage. Let's pray. Father, in a culture that no one seriously talks about the sexuality, we are often confused. So this morning we are thankful for your straightforward guidance from Scripture. Some of them was hard, and some of them was harsh in our, in our hearts. But thank you, Lord that you point to the right direction. Your word is truly a lamp unto our feet. So would you guide us, and not only guide us in our obedience, but give us the joy and peace and intimacy with you, the spiritual vitality that we look for and we yearn for as a church. Give us a purity. Brothers, and sisters who are committing to fleeing from sexual immorality. I pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.